This is an official communication from the government of Sofistan. From the country that invented the Switch Side Visa. And where every restaurant's soup of the day is, convince me. You are listening to the Republic of Sofistan podcast. Citizens of the Republic around the world are committed to one common cause. Liberation. Liberating your mind and your voice from poor habits of underdeveloped rhetoric, debate, and argumentation. Got a comment for us? Email us at podcast at sofastand.com. I am the Minister of Education for the Republic of Sofistan, Dr. Steve Yano, and I invite you to join me to decolonize your mind and explore the practices of debate, rhetoric, and argumentation that will liberate your mind and voice and help you become a sophist. Anchor.fm slash Republic of Sophistan. to everyone within the sound of my voice. It's the Education Minister of the Republic of Sofistan, Dr. Steviano, back with another episode of Republic of Sofistan. Hope you're liking the podcast. Um, We've been talking a lot. The last episode, we talked a lot about election debates, and I thought I might continue that conversation because here in the United States, where I'm at the embassy here in New York City, we've been able to watch these um, election debates and this midterm election happen. And um, it's quite a thing to, to witness. There have been endless political debates, and I think wherever you are in the world listening to this, you have probably been subject to endless electoral debates, too, in your election. The model, the American model of the presidential debate, you know, two or three or four candidates at podiums where a bunch of journalists or a agreed-upon moderator um, tells them, uh, asks them questions, and moves them through a number of topics has become somewhat, unfortunately, somewhat standard globally. But I want us to reconsider this idea of what we're supposed to do with these events and really think in a complicated way about how to understand them. There are two different forms of understanding. And the first one I'll go over, which is the default one, which is the one that sophists would reject. This is the one that's brought to us by the idea that debate is a uh, binary thing that is meant to be won. That is, when candidates debate, they are trying to win the debate. And the way they win the debate is by offering facts, truths, information, things like that, that prove that they know what's true, and therefore you're supposed to vote for them. I cannot think of a more flat, unhelpful, and rather ridiculous way to think about election debates. You've stripped out all of the elements that make them interesting, all the performative elements, all of the elements where we might say, there's really something wrong with that person. Well, what do you mean? They have all the facts and information. I don't know. I just really don't like them. Now, a lot of people listening who favor the enlightenment view of argument or the philosophical view of argument would say, that's exactly what we want. 
We don't want people making decisions based on feeling. We don't want people making decisions based on how they're moved. But I would say that's exactly what we want. And that feeling that someone is logical, feeling that someone has command of the facts, is also making decisions based on feeling. There is no such thing as an expert in debate. No matter how many times in the media and newspapers you see someone who's a director of a debate program or a debate coach at a college, they are not experts in debate. Now, they might be experts in debate in one sense, which is they understand rules or a set of rules that contest debates are run by. The danger with teaching contest debates outside of a rhetorical curriculum, outside of a much larger, much more embedded rhetorical approach throughout the entire curriculum, is that what happens is what works in a competition becomes very easily elided into what is good. Another way to say it is, if an argument works well and wins a debate, that means that that person is good at arguing. This is a very dangerous way to think. From the philosophical or scientific standpoint, a good argument is one that is universal. That means no matter where you are in the world, it is intersubjectively verifiable or maybe even verifiable without the presence of people as true, good, right, etc. That is, it is objective. This is not a rhetorical position, and this is not a useful way to handle human affairs and politics or in other things that we have to uh, debate on, such as what kind of community do we want to have? What kind of society do we want to have? All of those things are important and not settled very well by that kind of hard-hitting um, rubric. Um, the debate expert is somebody who knows a lot about different forms of debate and and if they're not teaching within a rhetorical curriculum, it gets to be dangerous. They say, well, this is a good argument, and here's why. And then they don't describe anything about the situation, the audience, or the moment. But they talk about form and about the game and about the things that one needs to do in order to win. Um, any debate expert on CNN or any debate expert you see writing on the web, um, identifying themselves as a debate coach or something like that, you have to be very careful because these people are not sophists. They are committed to a kind of a purification of argumentation where they think they're, they're able to do it the right way or instruct people how to do it the right way. Absent audience, absent topic, absent event, absent time, they'll find the right way and they'll be able to teach it. And uh, this makes us pay attention to things that don't really help us choose a person to represent us in a republic or a person to represent your views in a democracy. Um, in the end, a debate is a rhetorical event, and we can understand debate as a type of rhetoric. And I think that might be the best way to approach it. Um, thinking about debate, what, what does it need? What are the things in it that make it a debate? Well, uh, time limits. Um, these things are not very good with time limits. What do you have, 60 to 90 seconds to make your point or to respond? That doesn't help anybody. There's no room to develop anything, and it betrays a really poor, uneducated understanding of what's needed to make a debate good, which is time to build an argument. There's little time to do anything in 60 to 90 seconds except say what the facts are and whether or not you would follow them. And of course, everyone's going to say the same thing. These are the facts. These are what people need, and I'm the person who's going to do it, where my opponent ignores these facts. 
Um, there's a there's a kind of a judging. I guess the default is that you're going to judge who to vote for, but I don't think that's very useful. And uh, there's turn-taking, but not turn-taking in natural language. There's a turn-taking that's enforced by moderator or a team of moderators that's somewhat unnatural. It's like your time is up, even if you're not finished with your thought, and now it's time for a 60-second rebuttal without any time to reflect or think or anything. It really shows us how little we value speech, how little we value reflective thought, how little we as a society value uh, engage careful engagement with what other people said. Now, did you mean this? Did you mean that? And uh, people's defenses are way up. So you're not going to get any kind of constructive engagement or constructive conversation between people in those situations. But we're kind of left with them. And um, there are some people who do think these are valuable, and that's the candidates themselves. They wouldn't participate at all. There's no law. There's no restriction that they have to participate. There's absolutely no legal uh, realm, at least in the United States, for them to participate in debates. In Sovastan, everybody has to has to debate uh, quite frequently. We can get into the Sofistani culture later. But uh, in America, it seems as if congressional candidates and others don't have to debate. Uh, but here's the way they look at it. And I think this is from watching them why they think it's valuable because they don't see the debates as ways to resolve who's got the facts or who's got the truth. They see debates, rightfully so, as a soundbite generating machine. That is, I participate in the debate in order to ensure that people have the material to go out and defend me in public or in the electorate. I'm going to say things that are going to get people, uh, to give people the um, ability uh, and the tools to uh, defend me and to talk about my ideas uh, when they encounter other people. And that's pretty good. So that's a pretty good approach to it. So the idea of a debate as a way to finalize something or um, a way to reduce the conversation on something is kind of silly. Um, what it is is a dust cloud machine, too. So we're going to kick up a bunch of pieces of text that are going to circulate through time on the media, throughout the media, and then people are going to take those and say, well, yeah, of course they're right, and add their own ability into it their own ideas into it at the best of their ability, is what I mean. Everyone finds common places in Topoi which to speak about for that candidate, against that candidate, and they use their own information. So nothing makes you a better committed advocate for somebody, not just repeating their argument, but adding with it things that you've made up yourself. You can't put a price tag on that. People are invested because they're creating the argument with you. So these are incredibly valuable because it's about kicking up a dirty picture, kicking up lots of different kinds of speech, kicking up lots of different kinds of communication and talking. And I think that's what makes it really good. They are topoi generators, commonplace generators, generators of lots of different kinds of discourse, not meant to say, yep, there's nothing else we can say about that candidate. It's over. No candidate wants that because they want you supporting them for the long haul. They want us to think about it in a different way. Um, compare this to when a debate coach evaluates a political debate. And there's numerous examples. I don't want to really name drop anybody, but there's a few people out there who do this regularly. I don't really do it anymore. Um, I didn't do it. At I did it at first because I thought I could change things. I would speak to the media about election debates and say, well, they're not really debates. Here are the rules of a good debate. And here's what it needs. And here's why. But it never really made much of a difference because it's just too easy to talk about these things in terms of the sports metaphor, like boxing 
or like sports. And that's just not the way to talk about it. That's not a good way to talk about it whatsoever because it reduces all the elements to as if a few good plays will win the thing. And it doesn't help us make a decision about who's the better candidate or a decision about who has the better arguments or who can a, a very high meta level decision like we'd have in SofaStan is, wow, they made some pretty amazing arguments out of not a lot of uh, information there. Or they surprised us with a powerful argument that moved us. That's the person we want representing us in the assembly. That's the person we want representing us in political debates that we cannot attend. Um, most uh, debate expert commentaries are descriptive, and they talk about in terms of sports, who's going to win, who's going to win the voters, who's going to get the votes. This is all very flat and kind of useless, and it's ironic because why would you want silence when you're talking about political issues? Why wouldn't you want more speech? Why is a good argument seen by these people as rendering people into science, uh, into silence, excuse me? not science, rendering you into silence. Why would that be the goal? Um, these are incredibly important issues. Wouldn't I want to hear more? The more you say, the more I can generate. When you say, oh, there's no answer to that. They've won. Well, that's the end of politics. That's the end of what keeps politics alive. Facts need a lot of help to stay alive. Information and truth needs a lot of help to stay alive. And these things are only alive when we speak them and they only have the status of facts or truth when we're speaking them and we're doing them just service. Um, what's missing also from this is fluidity. Lots of fluidity. And what's also missing is that there's certain things that happen or they're said where people say, oh no, it's not really, um, you know, that's not really an argument. Let's move on. They've given debate with its robust human performance, the production, the aesthetic production of the human voice, the interaction between them and the candidates, the, um, the fact that most of it is sort of extempore, extemporaneous. Um, we flatten the beauty of these debates into something like a math problem. Absolute nonsense. Um, don't be committed to the form of logic and reason. Be committed to the audience. The audience is the pe is the, are the people or the audience is the thing, I should say, that we attend to the most. What are their traditions? What are their values? What do they find valuable and celebratory? Let's build arguments based on that, and I can show them as a candidate that there's lots of things to say about me as someone who's on their side. I'm not standing in front of them. I'm standing beside them, and I'm kicking up lots of different commonplaces and things they can use to talk about themselves, to talk about their community to talk about the things that matter to them, not hear a bunch of facts that I know and you don't. I'm smarter than you. That's the way to lose these debates. And I talked about the way I would think about it um, in the last podcast where I talked about framework, principle, vision, and action as the four key terms of which we can evaluate a debate and say, did they do a good job of identifying themselves as somebody who shares your values and can speak to your values? Um, can I communicate these values nationally and locally and do a really good job of it? So how do we evaluate these things? What do we do? Well, let's not judge them. Let's evaluate them. So we're going to take judgment right out of it. So in the future, when you watch election debates or political debates, don't, don't judge it. Who won? We got to get rid of this question. We got to avoid the trap of binary reasoning. Things that are as important and complicated as government policy, education policy, economic policy, it's insufficient, ridiculous, irresponsible, and simple-minded to be like, who won? Who was right? 
These are incredibly complex dynamic systems that require constant attention and constant thought. We don't need to support somebody who has a simple answer for these things. We need to support somebody who shows that they can take complex information and assemble it into a motivating speech given the conditions under which they're asked to do so. There are decision moments that come in government. There are decision moments that come in daily life. Can you assemble the information and the things around you to make a coherent picture that people get on board with? That's what we should be looking for. Let's evaluate their performance. Did they handle that question well? Not were they right, were they factual? Were they able to take what they know about us and what they know about government and what they know about the world and how much of that do I share? And how good of a job did they do assembling that in that short amount of time? Only the establishment gains from oversimplistic ways of thinking about debates. This binary decision, who won, who lost, that benefits the establishment. That doesn't benefit you. The Republican and Democratic parties, they're very happy to have you make a binary decision about who won a debate. Very happy because it maintains the power of the political establishment, regardless of what party they are. It doesn't help us get representation in the United States. So judging, why do we talk about judging? It's very convenient. It makes us think about sports. We only think about a few plays that scored rather than the entire performance. No one's going to evaluate a football team or a baseball team by saying, well, as a team, they were better. Well, look at the scoreboard. So that's the way sports work. But in a debate, we say, well, overall, they're better. And the debate becomes part of that. But if we think about it as like a sport, all of that nuance goes away. Very bad. Very dangerous. Not what we want. Let's consider evaluation as the term. Let's get away from win or lose. Let's get away from, oh, they nailed it on that. Let's get away from, oh, they have all the facts. Let's get away from all that. Let's evaluate that performance. Why? Because the performance shows us how they are going to generate motive, how they're going to talk about motives and how they're going to try to get attitudes, corresponding attitudes from us or about others through their speech. And that's the work of government. Instead of saying, let's look at the logical and factual connections. No, we want to look at what are the motives for why they're saying what they're saying and how can they construct those in a way that gets us to believe them. How can they generate attitudes about different things? And if they generate the attitude we support and they do it very creatively and powerfully, that's something to look at. As an example, I'll point to the viral video that Beto O'Rourke had, where he was talking about why he supports Colin Kaepernick's kneeling and other football players and athletes kneeling for the national anthem at sporting events. He was able to take the question of someone saying, I feel this is disrespectful and turning it around without much preparation uh, assuming that person wasn't a plant. They could have been a plant. But um, they turned it around without a lot of preparation and, and made something that really hit people and made them feel, yes, this is the way to answer this. That's what we're looking for in evaluations, not whether they had facts, not whether they fact check said that they did the right thing. Facts are not the ending points of debates. Facts are things that we keep alive and they help us. But as I say to my students, a fact is a starting point for a larger conversation about motive, attitude, belief, and action. That's where you want the audience to be. You don't want them just nodding at the fact and being like, okay, I gave you the fact. We're done now. That's not how it works. We have to be persuasive. We can't just be conveyor belts. We have to be persuasive. Um, 
evaluation also means we're a part of this thing. We're not just watching the race. We're a part of the race. And the reason why I say that is because when we're evaluating, we're saying, well, I could make that argument better. Or that argument really wasn't made very well. It's not like, you know, if we're thinking about it as a sporting event, we're not on the field. We're not allowed on the field. That's a very unhealthy view for the political. In the political, we're always on the field. We're always right there with the candidates. They're talking about our lives. Let's get in there and evaluate. What worldview are they missing? What experiences are they missing? Are they going to be able to construct excellent, persuasive, argumentative discourse without that worldview? Probably not. So the other thing about this is when we look at it as a sport, we think of a win-lose. It compels our support for one candidate over another one. We always have the option to support neither, and we always have the option to vote for other things. We don't have to support one of the two candidates. We can say, I'm going to do my political action this way. I'm going to involve my politics this way. The forced choice is a huge locus of the power of the two parties that run the United States. If we can get out of that in some way, that would be good. And by saying we evaluate the debate instead of judge the debate, I think that would be a great way to think about it. I think about the film Brewster's Millions where Richard Pryor's character uh, says, uh, I'm not really running for, for mayor of New York. I think it's mayor of New York and Brewster's Millions. Um, I'm just saying vote none of the above. And it wins. People forget that they can say none of the above, that government's supposed to work for them. And the debates are part of the social control mechanism a lot of times to think, well, we're supposed to choose between one of these two options, even though they're really bad. Uh, when we think about evaluation, we can, we can then start to have the aspirational conversation of, well, what kind of arguments would we want to see? What kind of debate would we want to see? What kind of responses do these, do these questions deserve? That's what we should think about. We should be able to frame our political responsibilities as we see fit. Not just voting between two choices, but engaging in the entire process. And by saying that speech isn't really that great, or I think of, I can think of a better way to respond to that. Now we're starting to get to the point that's really great where we can say, this is what we want out of our government. This is what we want out of candidates. Um, evaluation. Let's think of discourse as a large thing that we're looking at in totality. And then we can say, instead of, well, did they get the facts right in the debate? How does this discourse match up with other discourse that they have given at other times? It gives us a complete picture of their motives. It gives us a complete picture of what attitude we should have about them as we look at it in totality. So I think that's about all the time I have for this week. But I want you to think about by the time that um, next week rolls around, the midterms will be over and we'll have some new people in the U.S. government. It's an exciting time. But more exciting than that is what does the sophist perspective say about these debates? They're often ignored. We make fun of them. We think of them as kind of stupid or maybe a source of some really um, disturbing entertainment where people are going to shout at each other. But they can be very valuable if we think about them as places where we watch people try on our values and articulate them. Did they do a good job with that? Did they do a good job with constructing arguments? Are they doing a good job with constructing the realities that we face? Because we can face a number of different realities in a number of different situations, but unless we have good voice to those situations, it's as if they don't exist. They have to be articulated in ways that people can get on board with, that people can understand, people can believe, and people can act on. And rhetoric is the way that this happens. Rhetoric constitutes a lot 
of what people see in the world. And that constitution of belief and that constitution of perspective is where the power of these electoral debates lie. And I think we should pay closer attention to them. So the next time you have an election in your country or your neck of the woods, watch the debates and see what you can discern about them, not only about that person's ability to create and constitute reality and the actions they would take, but also what's missing from that. They can tell you a lot about what you'd like to see in your government and your politics and your country. Hello, expats and friends of the Sophistic Republic. Greetings. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'd like to invite you to come out to the 104th National Communication Association Annual Convention titled Communication at Play. This will be November 8th through the 11th in Salt Lake City, Utah. And the Minister of Education, me, Dr. Steviano, I will be there. Almost every night of the conference, we'll be sitting at the bar talking about rhetoric, argumentation, debate, and persuasion, all the things that you like that you listen to this podcast to get. And we'd love to have you come and give us your opinion on things. If you're a scholar attending or a teacher attending, come on down and tell us what you saw. If you're just in the Salt Lake City area and you want to talk about debate, speech, argumentation, come by. We'd love to have you on the show. We will probably be doing the show from the bar in the Hilton Salt Lake City at 255 Southwest Temple. Uh, in the bar of that hotel will probably be the main bar of uh, the conference. And there'll be lots and lots of rhetoric scholars there. Not all of them sophists. So we might have some interesting um, differing viewpoints. I think that any, any, there's really just... <clears throat> has been the Republic of Sunnistan Podcast. If you like it, please consider subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or Anchor.fm slash Republic of Sovistan. Republic of Sovistan is a production of International Debate Research Associates, LLC, in New York. All content is solely and totally the responsibility of International Debate Research Associates. Thank you for listening. See you next week.